Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? Doing very well. Today on the show, we have Marcus Jackson. Marcus Jackson is uh, he's an organizer with the ACLU of Kentucky who works on persistent felony offender laws. Well, I guess he, he works for the ACLU in a variety of ways, but he he was featured recently in Independent Lens documentary about persistent felony offender laws and was featured in a courier journal series of articles about that so we talked to him about these laws his own experience with it uh his ideas about how to deal with these things in the future about the film about a bunch of other stuff uh he's got a very very powerful story and he was very open and shared it with us so i definitely hope you guys stick around and listen to that at the second half of the show jasmine thank you for bringing him to our attention and uh yeah i thought that went really well yeah i've mentioned persistent felony offender laws so we call it pfo i've mentioned pfo laws here and there on a lot of episodes of our show over the years um but we've never had the chance to really do like a whole segment on them um and so i thought that this interview was really cool i didn't want to spoil the whole film for everyone though um and it's really powerful and so Everyone should go watch the film, and there are two others about um, PFO laws as well by Independent Lens. And so I think everyone should listen to our interview, but also go watch those films and read the Career Journal series. All right, very good. Yes, uh, before that, though, we have lots of things to talk about. There was a very strange situation last weekend uh, that kind of bled into this week about TRS, the Teachers Retirement System, and a bank in Russia. So we're going to talk very briefly about that. Uh, And then there's all kinds of stuff going on in the legislature. Jasmine has a nice segment about the NIL, the um, College Athlete Name, Image, and Likeness bill uh, that was completed and signed by the governor this week. So we're going to talk about that. And uh, I just have an update on a series of other bills that are making their way through the legislature, which what we always do at this time of year. So without any further ado, let's talk about Russia. Oh, geez. Jasmine, something strange happened this weekend regarding the teacher's retirement system. Uh, this story started kind of blowing up on social media, especially across like Facebook and Twitter, which is where I first saw a, first saw about it. And, and basically, the, the thing that was going around was this story that said that the retirement system had made a large investment into a Russian bank, and then they had to sell that investment at a loss before the Russian invasion of the Ukraine, um, which of course began last week and has been a, just a huge tragedy ever since then. So Jasmine, did you did you see this when it was going on at all? Yeah, I saw it. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was quite strange. Yeah, uh, and, and I think I kind of caught it in the middle like after it had been debunked, but I went back and saw these strange stories that were kind of floating around. So the Herald Leader was the first, saw, first source that I kind of saw reporting the TRS statement. Um, and the TRS statement said that they had, in fact, disinvested from a Russian bank, which is it, it called Spur, I think it's called Spurbank, um, on the eve of the war, and that the investment was sold at a $3 million loss, uh, but that the total investment was $12.6 million. And, and those numbers seem big, like $12.6 million, a lot of money, more money than I've got, that's for sure. Uh, and selling it at a $3 million loss, I've also never lost $3 million. That sounds like losing a lot of money. 
Um, but the full context of this story is kind of necessary for this to make any sense. So the, the TRS portfolio is nearly $26 billion. $12.6 million is one of the smaller assets in the portfolio, accounting for significantly less than 1% of total assets. And, you know, the other thing is, uh, the way that investments work is you often earn a dividend over a certain period of time, which is just like, because you hold this stock, here's some money of our profits. And and after they took into account all the dividends that Spurbank had paid out over the time that TRS had owned that asset, the overall, you know, holding actually made money for TRS. They made about uh, $200,000, so break even more or less from their investment in this Spurbank asset in Russia. The social media story got a little bit out of hand. Apparently, some posts claim that the TRS was a leading shareholder in Spurbank, which is not true. $12.6 million is is, is uh, not a, a major part of, of that of that bank, I don't guess. Um, so yeah, all, all these rumors and, and the attempted clarifications did end up leading to a hearing by the Public Pensions Oversight Board, which called in uh, TRS to answer questions about all this. So in the hearing, TRS officials explained that their total exposure to Russia, which does not include Spurbank any longer, but does now include other things, uh, is about $62 million. Or, or, you know, at least it was $62 million before the ruble collapsed. So, you know, now it's going to be less than that for now. The Public Pension Oversight Board members asked TRS, uh, you know, why they were invested in Russia at all. And the board did its best to kind of explain that nearly every portfolio with international assets has some exposure to Russia. Russia before the war was the 11th largest economy in the world. So, you know, you're if you're invested in international assets, you're more than likely to have something in Russia. So anybody with a 401k or an IRA probably has some percentage of their assets um, that are in Russia, as long as you have some sort of, you know, international assets as a part of your portfolio. I'm sure I do. Uh, and, you know, I don't have a professional uh, accountant or, or portfolio manager, so it'd be really hard for me to, like, parse that out. But, uh, you know, I just put money into a IRA or whatever, uh, and, and it just goes wherever it goes. And, and yeah, that, same here. Yeah, that, I think that that's kind of, like, the way it works for, for TRS is, like, okay, you know, we were, we were invested in international assets. We wanted to make sure we had a well-diversified portfolio. There's some things that we watch really, really closely and some things that we're just, like, trying to spread to make sure that we have, like, wide, widely diversified portfolio. And, yeah, some of it was in Russia. And that seems like how, how it ended up going like this. And, that, and that's their story. So board members on the Public Pension Oversight Board, they asked about disinvesting uh, from Russia for political purpose purposes, basically being like, well, Russia are bad guys. So can we very specifically not invest in Russia? And the TRS representative pointed out that social investing, which is what they call it whenever you're like, I don't want to invest in this because of my morality, because of my political beliefs, whatever, uh, it, it, that social investing opens up a really significant can of worms. And, and you know, who gets to make the decision about what causes should or shouldn't be invested into becomes very, very political. And, you know, makes the job of the systems managers much more difficult. Their job is to make money for the teacher's retirement system. It was like make money without investing in this or that or this or that makes it really, really, really hard. And, you know, you can take that excuse for for whatever you want to. I know that there's some systems that do more social investing, um, but, you know, uh, there's there's others that don't. So, you know, if the Republicans who control the Public Pension Oversight Board are very concerned with the overall funding for TRS, as they seem to be, while this committee hearing was going on, they have kind of a strange way of showing it because one option for the budget surplus that we're going to get into here when we talk about House Bill 1, you know, they could just, 
you know, use it to fund the pension, uh, which is still somewhat underfunded. And, and instead, they're trying to eliminate the income tax. So if you're thinking about ways that you could really harm TRS, uh, exposure to Russia is way, way down the list. And eliminating the income tax is high on the list, at least when it comes to uh, my perspective. So, you know, there are a lot of issues to unpack with this. You know, the overall facts of the story, besides the saying that, you know, that TRS was a huge investor in Spurbank, uh, the numbers were right. You know, when people are like, oh, my gosh, they had $12.6 million invested in a Russian bank. That's right. Um, that That's not something that's incorrect. But, you know... When you're thinking about issues like this or hearing issues like this, not only is it important that we get the facts right, it's also really important that we understand the context. Uh, and, and so I, I think, and, you know, Jasmine, you can share your opinion here too, but I, I kind of feel like I get it. Like, that makes sense. You know, they were they had some level of exposure to Russia. I would expect that to be the case. I'm sure they have exposure to all kinds of different things uh, across the, the world that are not always, like, my favorite things in the world. But um, that makes sense if they're having, like, a widely diversified portfolio. And, and I'm happy to kind of take them at their word uh, that that's all that this is. Uh, what are your thoughts? I think that's kind of I how I feel, too, because... Like you said, I have a 401k and, and I don't know where those things are going. And I assume that it kind of goes all over. Yeah. I take them at their word. Um, and it sounds like they got out before um, anything bad happened. And, and so this was really like it blew up on social media like this is really bad. Um, but it, it ended up to be not quite yeah. what it appeared to be. All right, Jasmine. Uh, yeah, it, it, this has been a really weird story. Uh, you know, uh, there's there's a lot that's goes into this and a lot that seems to be missing. And, you know, uh, hopefully we're able to kind of get this cleared up, get everybody on the same page and kind of move on from it. And we're going to move on from that story now. So, Jasmine, tell us what we need to know about NIL as it becomes law here in Kentucky. All right. We we have a good bill, I think, to talk about here. At least I think it is. Um, so last year, a lot of different people came together, including some important football and basketball coaches, Republicans, Democrats, and our Democratic governor um, to create a name, image, and likeness executive order right before other states' NIL laws went into effect. Um, so that would allow student-athletes to um, profit off of their name, image, and likeness. But um, that was just an executive order that was basically so that we could take advantage of it when everyone else could. Um, but So we needed to codify NIL. Um, and I think that that executive order probably needed some changes based on the way other states are doing things. So we have that NIL law now. It is Senate Bill 6. And John Calipari and Mitch Barnhart went to Frankfurt to testify about the law back in February. We didn't really cover that much on our show. There, there's a lot going on in the legislature, and we can't do everything, okay? <laughs> so we're talking about it now. Um, Senate Bill 6 does have some limitations. So it cannot be used as a recruiting tool. It imposes, it allows schools to impose reasonable restrictions on deals. Um, so that can include, for example, a deal that would like conflict with the mission of the institution. So that might be like, um, you can't take a deal for a liquor store or, you know, something like that. 
or for gambling or another reasonable restriction would be like a deal that would interfere with official team activities. So things like that. Um, and then the bill would also require schools to provide financial literacy and life skills education um, so that student athletes can better understand name, image, and likeness. So I think the big, the biggest change though, from the executive order, the executive order and the original version of the bill barred schools from negotiating deals on behalf of student athletes. And so um, this was kind of a big sticking point for coaches, the coaches, because other states like Ohio, for example, have allowed this. And so it makes it very hard to compete or recruit um, if all the other states are allowing schools to set up deals for their athletes, but we aren't doing that. So it seems like there was a little bit of worry in the beginning that that wasn't going to happen because it wasn't in the original bill. And I think that's why we had Coach Cal in Frankfurt back in February. So an amended bill passed. Um, that will allow schools to negotiate on behalf of athletes. It passed the Senate um, unanimously, 37 to 0, and then it passed the House 89 to 2. So the no votes were Representative Petrie and Representative Beckler. The bill was signed into law today um, with John Calipari in attendance, as well as Kyra Elsey, um, new SEC women's champ coach um, and Ryan Howard and then UofL's women's coach Jeff Walls was there as well I saw Mark Stoops there too uh, oh all... was he I didn't see him in any of the pictures he wasn't in the picture but I saw a video okay later. yeah he, yeah Mark Stoops has been a big part of this negotiation and getting the executive order last year like he's been a big part yeah. of this as well obviously UofL doesn't have a, a a men's coach right now uh but yeah no no Scott Satterfield so I don't know what, he, what he's up to so well and their their interim coach I, I believe they're at the they're, ACC tournament they're playing right, right now. now yeah they're, and they, yeah they actually won last night yeah <laughs> good for them so good for, good for them <laughs> Um, so the House um, also adopted a resolution that urges the federal government to take steps to ensure that international athletes can take advantage of state name, image, and likeness laws because there are federal laws that keep international athletes from taking advantage of some of the same NIL things. Um, and so that passed the House and has been received in the Senate. So that's just a resolution asking the yeah. federal government to do something. Um, but we have our NIL bill. It's passed. It's signed into law. Yeah, that international one's a big deal. Uh, you know, uh, at UK this season, uh, the probably the best player on the men's basketball team is an international student, Oscar Shibwe, who's from the Democratic Republic of Congo. And that was like kind of an open question. And it wasn't until like mid-season that he was able to like get cl clearance to have NIL deals, which, you know... Jasmine, you and I are both very, like very passionate about college athletics, uh, which is probably not something that we talk about <laughs> a lot on this show. Um, but yeah, this is just an issue. I mean, I, I I care about a lot of issues, but it's just crazy to me that you can play a sport where you're generating hundreds of millions, billions of dollars 
for, you know, for somebody and you get none of it. <laughs> and that just seems, that's always seemed very wrong to me. Uh, and anything we can do to get it so that the people who are actually generating the product get more of that money into their pockets, I am in favor of. So this is good. I'm glad everybody seems to be on the same page here in the state of Kentucky, where we had almost unanimous passage in both chambers. Good for everybody there. Um, yeah. And, and you know, the other thing is too, like some people are like, oh, well, they'll make a lot of money when they go on to the NBA. But you know, you're generating a product right now. And there's some players who are not good enough to make it in the NBA, but they're still generating a pretty significant mm-hmm. amount of money playing college basketball and they get none of that. So that just seems very unfair to me. Um, and anyways, uh, enough about that. Uh, let's talk about the other things that are winding their way through the legislature. Um, all right. So first of all, I wanted to talk about HB4. We've talked about we've talked about a lot of these bills before. So, you know, reference our, our previous shows. The show notes have information about what bills we're talking about. But HB4 is the bill to severely restrict unemployment insurance in Kentucky. It passed the Senate and there were some small changes made to the bill um, that were concurred by the House. And the, the House passed the bill on a 56, 58 to 36 vote um, on the concurrence. So it is headed to Andy Bashir, who is almost sure to veto it, I think. So, you know, just a little bit about the bill and its way through the legislature. There is a group of Republican legislators, mostly in eastern Kentucky, um, who were opposed to this bill. So, you know, you think about like Scott Sharp in Ashland, Bobby McCool, who's down there, I think in like southeastern Kentucky, Danny Bentley in Greenup County, Norma Kirk McCormick, who is in Pikeville, um, folks like that. That's Those aren't the only people... Um, in Eastern Kentucky, who are Republicans who are opposed to this, but those are some of them. Um, but the other side, the other group of, of Republican legislators who we thought might be opposed to this were some of the urban moderate legislators, you know, people um, like Jason Nemes or Ken Fleming or Killian Timoney, but really, or, or Kim Banta, none of those people were uh, voted no on this. Um, you know, it's likely this bill would have had a harder time if both segments of those urban Republicans and those Eastern Kentucky Republicans had come out opposed to it, but, but that didn't happen. It was just the Eastern Kentuckians who, who were uh, opposed to it. Um, it, it, it seems very, very likely now that Kentucky's unemployment system is going to get significantly less generous towards people facing a really hard time. So that's, you know, uh, yeah, I think I think the reason that we saw the Eastern Kentucky Republicans and not some of the like ones in Louisville or Lexington is because this was a big like labor movement push mm-hmm. um, for like the Mountain Caucus, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And some of those more like suburban and urban Republicans are not super pro labor <laughs> in fact they're quite anti-labor i think it's fair to say uh yeah and that's uh that is likely true jasmine yeah and not only were some of these urban republicans some of uh not only did they not vote against it some of them were the biggest cheerleaders for the bill mm-hmm. so um you know uh, in the flip side the next thing i wanted to talk about were two covid related restrictions that are moving forward so first is hb 51 that would ban mask mandates and that actually passed the house on a 56 to 35 vote And then HB 28, a bill that would ban vaccine mandates, was heard in committee and advanced onward. So, you know, the bill against the coalition against HB 51, we just talked about these two wings of the Republican Party and the House. It was a little bit like the inverse of HB 4, where urban Republicans like Adam Koenig, Kim Banta, Killian Timoney, Steve Sheldon uh, down in Bowling Green, they all voted against it. While just a couple of the Eastern Re- Kentucky Republicans were opposed to it. So, um, you know, as almost the same 
uh, you know, margin uh, is like 50, 56 to 35 and HB4 was 58 to 36, but it was a different wing of Republicans that were actually opposed to to HB51. Um, you know, this bill has not yet been taken up in the Senate. We don't know what's going to happen, but they certainly have the votes there if they want to do that. And this would ban mask mandates in uh, in schools, especially, uh, and kind of in a, a you know potentially related note, um, the JCPS school board met on Tuesday and they uh, voted to allow Marty Polio to decide about mask mandates. And he promptly moved JCPS to like a mask optional um, situation, which is much more in line with the CDC recommendations for Jefferson County. So, you know, that is what the CDC recommended for Jefferson County. But there had been a mask mandate that had been put in place by the JCPS school board. uh, And it was kind of like beating the legislature to the punch. Uh, You're not going to make us do it. We're going to do it on our own ahead of time, just under the wire. Uh, The other uh, COVID related restriction I wanted to talk about was HB 28, that ban on vaccine mandates. Mandates. The chief sponsor of this legislation is Savannah Maddox, who's widely considered kind of the most like Trumpy, the most Trump aligned member of the Kentucky legislature. Uh, and her vision for the bill was much more restrictive, where she would have had a, a ban on vaccine mandates just in a blanket way across the whole state, I think. But in committee, the, the bill is amended to only ap- uh, apply to kind of the public sphere. So like government employees, students and the like, those are the people who HB uh, 28 are going to apply to. Uh, private industry could still have vaccine mandates if they wanted to. And, and you know, I, I think the Republicans kind of s- understand that large corporate entities that are headquartered in larger cities are run by people who are maybe a little bit more aggressive about COVID than some of the rural Republicans in the state and that they wanted to continue to attract business to the state, which means that you can't really interfere with how they want to deal with their COVID restrictions. So those are the two COVID related bills that are making their way through. Obviously, both of them have a ways to go. Um, HB 28 still hasn't passed either house and HB 51 still has to be taken up by the Senate. HB1, that's the budget bill. It passed a Senate committee on Wednesday morning. According to testimony from Senator Chris McDaniel, uh, this is a quote that Joe Sanka actually had, the Senate version of HB1 leaves about one and three quarters of a billion dollars in the rainy day fund and uh, leaves $1.25 billion in unspent funds. So the rainy day funds are like, they're there forever and the unspent funds are just like, those are that's what we have left over for this year. So that leaves plenty of room this cycle for HB eight, which is the GOP's tax cut. So that tax cut, you know, could cut one point two five billion dollars in, in revenue um, without showing a negative amount in um, in the fiscal note. I think it does have a negative amount still. Um, in the fiscal note. Uh, so I don't know exactly what the number is going to be there. But uh, yeah, they, they can they can cut taxes pretty substantially this cycle and still not have a negative number. Now we're pretty flush. Kentucky's pretty flush because of a lot of support that we've received from the federal government. But if you cut taxes, they're cut. Uh, and when you know, of course, when things turn uh, south, that would mean we're in a really tough spot and have to cut things like education, higher education and all the like. So uh, still a really bad bill. And we should spend the money on, you know, services for people, maybe unemployment insurance. That would be something we could spend the money on. So anyways, that's how HB1 is moving through the legislature. 
And then there's two bills about social issues that are having significant hearings on Thursday, the 10th of March. So first of all, SB 321, which bans abortions after 15 weeks, is going to be heard. Um, yeah, uh, this is a bill obviously really important to me. Um, you know, uh, people can go back and listen to our shows about, um, you know, my wife's abortion and and going through that, uh, you know, later term abortion because of a fetal anomaly. Um, Kelsey is not going to be testifying, but she actually has uh, going to have some testimony that she wrote red for that bill. So if you're around listening to it, um, you can check that out if you want to. So that's SB 321 and then also SB 313 and, and SB 313 is the bill that severely restricts bail relief organizations. There's a mirror bill in the house HB 313 that we've actually talked about before, but SB 313 is kind of the same, but HB, um, HB 313 kind of had, uh, some changes made to it by the sponsor, Jason Nemus. Um, uh, that I think that bill has a maximum of five thousand dollars that uh, could be paid um, in in HB three thirteen and SB three thirteen. That number is two thousand dollars. So HB three thirteen has passed the House, and actually the Senate committee that's hearing SB three thirteen has House Bill three thirteen and Senate Bill three thirteen that they could hear in their committee, and they're choosing to hear. SB 313. That could signal any number of things. We don't know for sure. I think they may think that they have a better bill and want the House to take up their bill, or it might just be that they don't have any intention of passing this bill, but don't you know want to make it look like they've been working hard on the issue. So I don't know. I don't know where this is going, um, but that's that's what's going on here. Um, there's definitely high probability that we are going to ban abortions after 15 weeks and that we will ban charitable bail organizations paying any money uh, of, of note. So those are two social issues uh, that I wanted to talk about as well. HB And then these last two are a little bit more positive. So HB 136, which is the GOP's medical marijuana bill, it received uh, the support of Senator Whitney Westerfield uh, just today. So he's the chair of the committee that the bill actually needs to advance through in order to make it to the floor of the Senate. But the bill hasn't really started moving yet. The House still has to hear it. It still has to uh, approve it. But it did that last year. And the fact that Whitney Westerfield is giving it his support might mean that the bill starts moving soon. That was just a signal of something to watch. Um, HB 136, um, and the, the, the just kind of the overall GOP push to legalize medical marijuana. Um, I don't think that uh, people who are advocates for medical marijuana think very highly of this bill. Uh, but I guess it's better than nothing. So, uh, you know, we we may have like Jim Higdon on or something in the next little bit to talk a little bit about the different marijuana uh, bills making their way through the legislature or not making their way through the legislature uh, and see what he has to say. And the last bill I wanted to talk about is HB 31, which is the Crown Act that is uh, Representative Attica Scott's bill that she has sponsored for, I don't know, like five years, six years at this point, uh, which would, you know, mandate that natural hairstyles for for uh, black and African-American children uh, to not be uh, against dress codes in public schools or any schools, I think uh, it's actually going to get a hearing in the House, which you know, she's been pushing for for a really long time. Student advocates have been working with her to get this passed for a really long time, and it just hasn't moved. And, and there's really, I, you know, I defy anybody to come up with any reason to be opposed to this bill. I've yet to hear anybody give any reason to be opposed to it, and yet it will not make its way through the House, but it has finally started. Hopefully it, more, it gets more than a hearing, hopefully it gets advanced, it gets uh, a vote in the House, and then it gets a vote in the Senate and becomes law. I would really love for that to happen, but we 
we will see. All right, Jasmine, that was a lot of bills. Any that you want to talk about in particular, any that you have uh, an opinion on that you want to share? No, I think you did a pretty good job of summing it up. I will just add that I think the medical marijuana bill getting Whitney Westerfield's support seems like a big deal because I, if I'm remembering correctly, I I don't know if he has been like public like been supportive of it before yeah he's been opposed to it in the past i'm pretty sure or i mean maybe not opposed to it but kind of said this is a bill that needs some work uh and i think you know he's like i'm not necessarily opposed to the idea of medical marijuana but i don't know if i can support this bill that kind of thing um yeah 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 not like a a hard no but um that that seems like it maybe has more of a chance than it has before i agree I agree. I, I mean, I definitely think it has more of a chance than it has before. It's definitely just one hurdle on the way, though, because once it gets to the floor of the Senate, you know, there's eight Democrats that are going to vote for it. You're going to have to get, you know, like 15 more votes. I don't know if it's there. We'll see. We'll see. Um, maybe if it gets called. That's that's probably the other middle hurdle is that you then have to get the president of the Senate, Robert Stivers, who's been very skeptical of marijuana in the past to actually call it for a vote. Um, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. You're right, Jasmine. All right. Well, uh, yeah, no quick hits. No COVID update. COVID, uh, COVID updates are moving to weekly for the whole state. So, um, you know, I'm not going to have special information in the middle of the week like I have in the past. So you might want to just start listening to Andy Bashir's Monday updates if you're interested in COVID. Uh, we'll probably talk more about that if it becomes like a very particular story or, or cases start to go up or there's a variant or something like that. Um All right, that's it. Let's get to our interview with Mr. Marcus Jackson. Marcus Jackson is a native Kentuckian and the organizing coordinator for the ACLU of Kentucky. He's also featured in an investigative multimedia series from Independent Lens and the Courier Journal about persistent felony offender laws in Kentucky. Mr. Jackson's advocacy for criminal justice reform comes from the perspective of a directly impacted person. Um, And prior to joining the ACLU, Mr. Jackson worked as an expungement paralegal for the Louisville Urban League Riley Reentry Expungement Clinic. So, Marcus Jackson, welcome to my old Kentucky podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you here. So you're featured in uh, this film, Persistent, uh, which is that documentary by Evan Mascagni, um, which is with Independent Lens, which you know I watch on PBS. You can check out other places. Um, but you're also uh, in an accompanying uh, Courier Journal series about persistent felony laws in Kentucky. So you know, for for those of us who haven't read the series or watched the film yet, can you tell us a little bit about persistent felony laws, just like what they are and how they impact people? Yes, um, Kentucky's persistent felony offender statute is like it's our version, Kentucky's version of the three strikes law, and I'm pretty sure everyone is familiar with the three strikes law. It's a it's a horrible analogy of, of baseball, three strikes and you're out. I just think that's an awful way of approaching criminal behavior and justice. Um, so that's it's basically in Kentucky. However, it's not three strikes; it's one strike. So upon your second conviction, or being in charge with your second conviction, you will face persistent felony offender statute, which is basically just a status that you aren't eligible or you're not able to be rehabilitated. So we must treat you more harshly. Um, and then upon your third one, the sentences are even much harsher. There's a mandatory 10 years that people have to uh, serve before they're eligible for probation. Um, I meant for parole. And when you look at that, this isn't impacting violent offenders. We're not talking about 
the valid offender statute already requires people to sell 85% of their time. We're talking about lower level offenders. Um, and, and that kind of does uh, kind of answer my next question, but but also maybe you would want to expound on that a little bit, which is to say, like, you know, if if you're the type of person who's not really impacted this by by this on a on a day to day basis, or maybe somebody who's not super familiar with the criminal justice system in general, you know, you hear about like, okay, well, you know, you got these people that are out here committing crimes on a regular basis, like, why why shouldn't they go to jail for a long time? Um, and, and you know, can you talk to us a little bit about how the rubber meets the road with this sort of thing? Like, well, who are the people that are impacted by PFO statutes, and and how did how did we get here? Since 1974, when PFO was added to are um, the criminal codes. The, it was punished, 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 punished. And I don't believe it was in, intentional. I didn't think people were wanting to be like super tough. I think people just didn't know what to do with crime, you know, especially with just drugs at that particular time. It's, this was like the movement of like, we have to do something to, to preserve our communities. So we saw Kentucky take steps that were much harsher than other places in other states. So when you look at that, some of the worst changes before in 1974, you had to have actually been to prison, served at least a year in prison for a felony offense before it was triggered because the belief was that we want to punish people that we have tried to rehabilitate, that we, that it failed. And now they're committing crimes again. Well, they took that year requirement away. So now it's just anybody, any offenses, we're going to treat you harshly. Uh, some of the good things that have happened in the last few years, we're, they're starting to walk back some of the things. Um, possession charges, like if a person had a possession charge of a drug, that didn't trigger PFO. However, if you your first offense was PFO, I mean, your first offense was possession of a drug. And then your second offense, we can use that first possession charge to trigger PFO to handle you much harshly. And it ignores so many things. It's like we can't we cannot take a blanket approach to criminal justice or, or justice at all, because it doesn't consider so many things when dealing with people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just to talk a little bit about some of the problems with PFO laws. I mean, Jasmine on this show often talks about whenever we're in session, um, all, all the new felonies that get added to uh, to the, the, the laws. And, and one of the ones that uh, I, I don't know if it's, it's probably making its way through. I don't know if it's passed yet, but like porch piracy, like if anybody steals like somebody's new toothbrush off the front porch of somebody's uh, house, it's a felony automatically. Yeah. Uh, and and kind of tell us a little bit about uh, about the, the broader problems with just like how in actuality these things work like in a in a uh, you know in a courtroom like what what are ways in which who who is actually impacted and what are some of the things that you've seen in terms of people people being impacted by PFO uh, statutes yeah um, please don't steal my Amazon package <laughs> no that's <laughs> do not steal my Amazon package um, and it's a felony but no uh, seriously um, I guess when we look at PFO. When we really look at it, I mean, when I think of justice, I think of someone going before this system. We have a competent judge. We have competent defense counsel. And we have a competent prosecutor. You know, everyone trying to either seek the truth or find out or, or come with the best results to find the best results for that individual. PFO does not do that. 
PFO clusters, everyone in one pal. If you have a prior conviction, now you're second degree PFO eligible. You have to go to prison. You doesn't have you do not have a chance for probation or shock probation from a judge. And the jury have to find you guilty of PFO based off of just that prior conviction alone. No considerations of the person. No, no consideration by the judge like, hey, this is a horrible situation that we don't believe this person would definitely. We don't believe that this person is a persistent offender. We just feel like some circumstances are, are out of whack. There's no intervention from the judge or the jury. We have to follow the letter of the law. We don't have a say so. And these are some of the things that we definitely have to change because we feel like every individual should be judged by what they have done not by what someone else has done and thrown into this big old pal of just your, this label that this label carries because it carries a lot of weight. Not everyone that has multiple felonies is a persistent felony offender. Some people have one felony, one horrible felony, <laughs> you know what I mean? And they're not a persistent felony offender. Um, you, you know what I mean? It's just, it, the law makes no sense. I understand the purpose but what we have, the practice of it, what's on that piece of paper looks totally different from how it's practiced in our communities. Yeah. And something that I'll add about how I see it in practice as an attorney is when someone's charged with a felony, they indict the PFO charge right before trial or something to force a plea and and so it's, it's really used to force really bad plea deals with other cases sometimes. Um, and so they, they may not indict the PFO at first. And then um, someone doesn't want to take the plea deal that they're offered and the PFO gets indicted or sometimes it's indicted to begin with. And the risk of getting your sentence doubled at trial is just too great. And so the biggest problem and how it's used in practice is just how it coerces terrible deals yeah. from my perspective. No, you're absolutely right. In Kentucky, our numbers are like 94%. Mm -hmm. 94% of cases before court ends up in a plea bargain. I mean, I hate to say this, but the reality is, and the people that we're missing are the people that are actually innocent or factually innocent of crimes that are right. to take a plea bargain. I will take a plea bargain today to avoid doing 10 flat mm -hmm. today. No one right now at this time on this podcast, if I was charged with an offense, I would really consider and probably take um, the plea bargain before I went to trial to a jury trial and ended up doing, having to do a mandatory 10 year sentence. And that has always bothered me because I always felt like plea bargains are for the guilty. Plea bargains is a way for us to allow someone that, that actually committed a crime to come to receive less of a sentence for that crime. It doesn't help the people that are actually innocent. And I have been in that seat where I was yeah. actually innocent and didn't do anything, you know, and look what happens. Yeah. So I, I do want to talk about that. So you have been directly impacted by the PFO statute. So can you share a little bit about, your own personal experience um, of, you know, being convicted and being a per persistent labeled as a persistent felony offender. Yeah. Um, as I, as I mentioned earlier, I was sent to prison for something I didn't do. I was an athletic nerd. That's all I was an athletic nerd. 
I ended up being convicted of a crime that 20 something years down the line, the actual people came forward and admitted to it. Um, and then it hurt me even more because the police had those individuals that night that the incident happened. I just don't know how I ended up in this situation. Um, but going to prison and returning from prison is not an easy thing. Most people feel like you can just come right back home and just pick up where you left off. And that's so far from mm -hmm. the truth. So far from the truth. I mean, never had a conviction in my life before. No misdemeanors, no nothing before that. And I come out, new friends, new attitude, new trauma, you know, and no resources, no opportunities and doors constantly slammed in my face. So I went, I took the things that I learned while I was inside to be able to survive out here, which led to more convictions. Should by paper, does it look like I'm a persistent offender? Yes, by paper, but by knowing me, no. I'm not. There were some situations that were going on that and some poor choices. But when we start talking about choices, I mean, I think for me, it was always having to choose between the lesser of two evils. You know, do I do A and starve and let my family starve and my children starve? Or do I do B, which I hate to do, but at least they're taken care of. And as a man, I'm supposed to provide for my family and not allow them to end up in the situation that I found myself in. So it's, it, there's always these two evils that that I was forced to choose between and it led to conviction after conviction. Yeah, I think watching the persistent film, something that was really powerful to me when we talk about this stuff, we often talk about, you know, the problems and trauma that prison creates on like the individual like, oh, it's it's hard to get a job and you can't vote and you and you can't participate in society. But you really talk about in the film about the impact on your family. And I think that that was super powerful. So I definitely encourage people um, to watch it and read the series after this, if you haven't done that already. Um, but I do want to like follow up on that reentry piece. So, I mean, it's no secret that people struggle and they even often reoffend when they're released from incarceration and reentry is just so difficult because of all the harm that the system causes and the trauma that it causes and the way you have to survive afterwards. And, and so, you know, what motivated you to become an advocate and an organizer after you were released from incarceration? Well, for me, I lost who I was. I started allowing people to define who I was. You define me as a persistent felony offender. You, you, you define me as a convict or a felon or whatever other label you put on me. And I bought into that. Mm -hmm. I, I bought into that wholeheartedly. If this, how you're going to see me, I'm powerless to change it, you know, and, and it was a dark time, but before in 2014, my grandmother um, came to see me and she always stayed on my back. Like, you know, don't let them, don't let nobody define you. You're better than this. You shouldn't be here. And I'm at Kentucky State Penitentiary for pot. I'm at a maximum security prison for pot. And it didn't make sense. Nothing made sense to me. And she stayed on me and she stayed on me. And we had a conversation that really weighed on my heart. And I didn't know that she was about to pass. And she passed while I was incarcerated. And then I got the affidavit from the individuals that had committed the crime. 
and all these pieces came together and it was like I was able to finally someone other than me knows that I didn't do this. You know what I mean? It was like a whole different, it was a whole, it fueled me. And the first thing that I worked on when I was inside, didn't know it was possible, but there was a sign that says, all ye, all who enter, abandon ye all hope. It was a sign at Kentucky State Penitentiary as you walk in the door where they strip you out. And I fought. I thought it was horrible. It made me feel like crap when I went there and the officers pointed to it and wanted me to look at this sign as they made me take off my clothes and do the, we call it the slave dance. Take off your clothes, bend over, squat, open your mouth, all these things. It's the, it's, it was just reminiscent of slavery. And I went to Randy White and we fought to get that down. And he took that sign down. And I was thinking, it's possible for me to do more than I'm doing. My voice, I do have a voice. And I kind of reclaimed myself through that time. And I educated myself. I went to college. I did everything. And I was very fortunate that someone opened a door for me like Sadiqa Reynolds that allowed me to come straight out of prison and start doing criminal background expungement because I wasn't supposed to be released until January of 2019. Sadiqa wanted me to have a interview on December the 20th of 2018. And I told her I would make it, not even sure if I could. And it released me on December the 18th, two days before that interview. And then I went and got the job. So I just felt like my path was laid for me. It was, I had to go through those things. I had to live that to be where I'm at now. Yeah, that's really powerful. Um, and it, it is just really indicative of how some people view the prison system when a quote from like Dante's Inferno that is supposed to be above hell is in the prison. Um, that's really very sad. But, you know, that your past is really powerful and, and, and I really appreciate you sharing it with us, but we do want to talk a little bit about your present and your future. Um, so, you know, you work for the ACLU, um, and, and we've had a lot of guests on from the ACLU, uh, both both former employees and current employees talking about the work that they've done. Um, so we are interested in, in knowing, you know, uh, you're an organizing coordinator at the ACLU working on this issue. What does that look like on a day-to-day basis? What are the things that you're working on right now? And, and what are some things that you're going to be working on, um, you know, as we, as we move forward on this issue into the future here in Kentucky? Yeah. Um, voting, voting rights is, is, one of the main things that I want to work on. I think with the vote, we already know that individuals that engage civically are less likely to reoffend. That's that's just proof shown by the data. So as an organizer, and and I'm people get people make the there's a distinction between organizing and mobilizing. You know, gathering people up, getting them to point you know, from point A to point B, that's mobilizing. I organize means I go into the communities, I listen to what the communities are saying, what they need. And I try to connect those individuals with resources within their communities. I try to offer trainings to individuals that are directly impacted to empower them to become leaders in their own community. That's what I do as far as organizing. So I go all around Kentucky. I plan on being in all 120 counties by 2025. I've knocked out a large chunk of those counties already. And it's about taking what we know what we're working on and seeing how it relates to what's going on into individuals' communities. And once we have that, we find a common thread that's happening all across the communities in Kentucky 
And then we try to strategize around those issues to either change legislation, policy. And my main focus is community engagement, because regardless of what you put on that piece of paper, if the people in the community don't understand it and don't accept it, it means absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we did, if we were able to repeal the PFO statute, that's, that's a big dream, right? But what types of sentencing or reentry laws do you think we should enact instead? That's a tough one. And, and I guess my answer would be, we need to revise the entire penal code. That happened in 1974. Yeah. How do we think there's nothing in 1974 that still runs good today, except for a well-kept car. And we don't have that anymore. <laughs> I was born in 72 and my body's broken down. All right. So, I know, but no, seriously, um, we have to do more around penal reform. We really have to get people more engaged. We have to stop pushing people out and start pulling more people in. You know, we need the people that are mostly impacted by these things to have a voice to be able to say exactly like this is where the areas are. This is how we mm -hmm. save people instead of just closing the door and feeling like people that are so disconnected from the communities and allowing them to just have the say of what works when they have no, no clue of what works in our communities. Yeah. I, and I think like the tough part of that is that the legislature, it, it's nearly impossible to get any kind of comprehensive reform on anything. Like anything you do has to be like, this one small piecemeal amendment and, and it takes years to even get those, you know, it, we last year, we finally got um, an increase in the felony threshold, which was super outdated, you know, um, and we're getting those like very small things, but then we're also getting bills that swing the pendulum the other direction and, and like go back to this, like, I don't know, like war on crime <laughs> kind of mentality. And so it's really tough to do anything when you when there's no ability to like do anything comprehensive. Um, and so, and I know that's, that's going to be really hard to do. Um, but what, what are some other criminal legal reforms specifically that you would like to see in Kentucky? Okay. Um, I work with, I have currently incarcerated people that are smart justice advocates. So I lean on them to tell us like, what they would like to see. And mm -hmm. one thing that's been identified is the violent offenders, the violent offender statute. Yeah. That, that's something that needs to be changed. All those crimes are not equal. They're, they're not. No, all. they're not. <laughs> they're not. I mean, it's, it's like common sense thing. So when you look at the violent offender statute, I would love to abolish the pro board. That would be something that would be amazing to do. Um, we have people that are constantly getting deferments and deferments that really makes no sense. I think there has to be an established criteria for them to follow if we're even going to have them. They can't just simply everyone that goes before the pro board, you're going to have the same boxes checked. Nature and severity of the crime. Nature and severity of the crime. That's one thing that cannot change. You can never change the nature and severity of your offense. It happened it's in the past mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter what you've done since then. Nothing changes that. And that has already been the, established by legislation through the statute, through the penal code of the amount of time that you are required to serve. So how can they continue to come back and say we can't release you because of the nature and severity of the crime? 
both of those make a lot of sense to me. Um, you know, I, I'm not a lawyer, and, and Jasmine's actually had to do a lot of education with me when I'm like, yeah, you know, violent people, that sounds bad. And then she's like, here's what's on this list. And it's like, oh, wow, that doesn't seem like it belongs on that list. And then, you know, there's a lot of research around parole, which even says that, like, it's just if you get people after lunch, they're more likely to let you out, which doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem like it's a just system. So both of those make total sense to me. So uh, hopefully we got some good organizers working on it. And we got one uh, that's that's doing the work to get people educated and work on this. But we invited you on here uh, because you are in Persistent. So tell us a little bit about how can people watch the film. And then, you know, beyond that, if people are, are energized by this issue or, or are affected by this issue and want to find, know about ways uh, that they can join the fight to end uh, Persistent Felony um, laws like this, uh, how, can, how can they do that? First, you can go to our website at aclu-ky.org. Um, and you can watch it there or you can go on YouTube. It's, it's actually on YouTube right now where you can watch it. The articles are online. They're unlocked now. So anyone can read those articles as well. Um, and if you want to get engaged, you can reach out to us directly. You can go to that page uh, that I gave you earlier. My contact information is on there. You can reach out. I'm pretty sure everyone in Kentucky already has my cell phone number because I give it to everyone. It's out there. It's very public um, because I want to hear from people. I want to hear exactly what people feel about it, whether it's supporting me or opposing me, because we have to have that dialogue. We have to have those understandings to find that common ground to make some type of change. Um, and I would don't wait until you or your loved one is in that situation to start caring about these issues. It's too late. We have to make sure that this system is equitable for all parties involved. And I mean, everyone across the board, I do not want to create victims. I don't, I want victims to get to receive justice. And I want people that are accused to also receive justice. And there's a way of doing that. We can't overload the system one way or the other, you know, and I feel like people should be held accountable without a doubt, but held accountable for, for what's for that person. It has to be individualized. It cannot be blanketed. It has to be about that person's situation, that person's behavior, and that only, not because I heard a, uh, because I heard a horror story about someone that was released. They came home and they killed someone. Well, that's not normal. That's not the normal situation. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? So we have to just stop letting these horror stories dictate how we engage everyone in our criminal legal system in prisons. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. I mean, all these people go to law school for a long time to learn how to do this job. We should let them do their job and uh, not leave it in the hands of uh, some folks who got elected. Uh, anyways. Uh, all right. Well, Marcus Jackson, thank you so much for joining us. We, we really appreciate you being on today. Thank you for having me. Jasmine, how can people find out about us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old KY pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter that comes out on Fridays with our show notes in it. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we are part of the Demcast network. All right, everybody, thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.